0: Welcome to Stories of Growth, a series of conversations with modern-day business leaders who share their stories of growth and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm William Rowe, founder and CEO of Protein. I've been helping businesses grow for over 20 years and I've always been fascinated with the people
1: behind these businesses, where they've come from and what drives them forward. I would say 20 years from now, non-circular, non-sustainable business will be akin to a war crime. A war crime. I think it's that level that we're pointing towards. For this episode, I sit down with Sam Conniff-Allende, author
0: of Be More Pirate and co-founder of Liberty and Don't Panic. He's on a mission for all businesses to find their true purpose and to get everyone else talking like a pirate in the meantime. This was recorded in our studios in Shoreditch. Welcome to Stories of Growth. Uh, very excited to have you uh, on the show. Um, hear about what you've been up to. Definitely been tracking your trajectory for the last few years, even though we haven't formally met. So I'm very good, very glad to uh, make
1: your acquaintance in a physical form rather than following you in a digital form. Wow, the tracking was interesting. I was, <laughs> suddenly had pictures of you with like camo on your face. Uh, I, <laughs> Because I, too, have been uh, admiring from afar, <laughs> which sounds more romantic than tracking, um, your success. And there is a lot of uh, overlap and intersection between our organisations. So it's very nice to yeah. meet you, probably, too. you for the invitation. Thank you. So... Especially because previously I've thought of you as rivals. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and now we're not. And now it seems we're not. Okay, yeah, it depends, depends how this goes. Okay, let's... <laughs> Live. Exactly. <laughs> So let's start. Protein um, vs Liberty. Wrap <laughs> <Rap-tons>. that <laughs> Oh, Yes, that's what I'm we need. I'm ready for that. I think you're going to win on the pirate slang, <laughs> but maybe we I'll can. I'll win. win on every
1: pirate <laughs> slang. My my bars are sick, mate. <laughs> um,
0: let's start at the beginning. For those who don't know or haven't heard of um, you and Liberty and Be More Pirates. Maybe uh, let's just just lay it out in terms of um, what you've achieved so far uh, and, um, yeah, what people might know you for.
1: Well, let's assume that everybody listening has not heard of me. Hello, everybody that's listening. It's nice to meet you too. There are not going to be no, no sick bars, just in case you're you worried and about to turn off. Um... um We were just laughing beforehand. I've had a shit day, frankly. And you know how it is. I've had a shit weekend, then come into a shit day. It's Monday, it's the beginning of winter. I feel pretty dismal about it. So I don't want to lie, but I don't sometimes always feel like you've achieved that much. You know, I could list out a bunch of stuff, but what does it all amount to? What are you proud of, really, in this whole game? Um, I've consistently wanted to try and change the world for as long as I can remember. Like the beginning of Goodfellas, where ever since I can remember, I always wanted to change the world. And that's always been the goal. And I'm. I'm What age? my dad died when I was really little, just to go completely off it. And I think I always had a sense that I wanted to put right what went wrong. What age were you? Five. Okay. How old are your kids? Five and two. Ouch. How old are you? 45. Right. So my dad was in his early 40s and I was five. Yeah. And my daughter is also five and I'm the exact age he was this year. Wow. And so it, it's definitely... resonant. Yeah, yeah, this year definitely. As I passed my birthday, which was when he died... Uh, the thought of not being around in her life yeah. from this point forward really sticks with me. And, and maybe ask the same question in a different way. I can't tell you what the fuck he ever thought, yeah. or, 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 or thought was good, or said he was going to do and didn't do, or how he felt about his achievements. All I can tell you is what he did, and it's made me really reflect on that: that our intentions ladder up to fuck all, and our actions are the only thing that remains. Mm. yeah without question i don't think i got there before i think you know i always thought i was very predicated on the chat yeah so this is a recent realization or has always been there um i don't know children fundamentally reframe the world a little bit don't they they certainly do when did you start we started at similar times didn't we liberty and protein yeah You, Mm. you came a bit after us well, I don't know. When do you guys start? He says. <laughs>
0: uh, 98.
1: With oh, right. You're going way back. Did yeah. You know proteins that 20 years off? last year. God damn. Happy birthday. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, no, I started Don't Panic in 97. Okay. There um, you go. But Don't Panic, don't like to admit that. Because? Don't Panic is much more of a cool and uh, vibrant startup. <laughs> I'm the leadership of its founder and one of my oldest friends, uh, Joe Wade. Don't Panic is, I think, about three years old uh, these days, um, and constantly the vibrant, innovative new agency. Uh, and I started a very different, you know, print-based version mm-hmm. of Don't Panic that was standing around outside nightclubs, uh, yeah. a long, long time ago. But the DNA of trying to make a difference was there. I, I, I've been doing nightclubs for a while with this loose banner of "Save the World," and um, we don't know what the, what the, yeah, what the, <laughs> what that meant. We'd sometimes print it even on the tickets. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It was called Supernature, and there was this like. Wait, that was your club night? Yeah. Where was that? Um, South London, all over. Actually, all over the country. We did, from Brighton, South Coast, we did a couple in Liverpool, Brixton mainly. Um, Wait, this is pre-Don't Panic? Pre-Don't Panic, yeah. Okay, so this got you
0: into Don't Panic?
1: Yes. Okay. Started doing, I was a chef, which wasn't to do with changing the world, that was just to do with making shit. I like making things, and moved out when I was 18, needed a job, chefing, paid for it on a club night with some friends and kind of fell Where is it. this? That was in the, underneath the Doddington and Rollo Estate on Battersea uh, Rise. There used to be a quick save, <laughs> and we did it in the basement of the quick save. Wait, <laughs> where is this? On the Doddington and Rollo Estate. What year? Give me, uh, give, me, give me some specifics. It was the 5th of November, 1995. Wow. Yeah. What was, was the lineup? Um, it was pretty fucking progressive for its time, actually. It's good, thanks for asking. No one would that. Uh, it was Charles Peterson and um, uh, LTJ Bookham, Back to Back. Wow. For 1995, for it was pretty ahead of its time, That's right? a night. Yeah. <laughs> That's still a night. Exactly, it's still a night. I'd still go to that. Come on. Uh, and in the other room we had Chucky. if you remember Chucky from Chucky yeah. Tunes. We had DIY crew, so it was like quite Progressive house and what was then known as intelligent drum and bass, which sounds yeah like a terrible name now, but yeah, it's fucking great. That sounds awesome. <laughs> Loads of fun. So this was this um, was the first night. That was Supernature's first real outing. Yeah. Yeah. And then carried that on for four or five years, and then started managing some bands and managing some artists that I kind of picked up along the way. Yeah. And then fell into managing other people's venues, and then it was an interesting. Where were you? Were in London then? Was well, so you must have been. Cause this, yeah, yeah, go? yeah, right you from- No, I came
0: to London in 96, uh, yeah, 97. I was in Dublin for a year, 96, right. and came into London September 97. And have you always been based uh, around here? No. Um, all around, but always kind of you know, coming here, but never living here. It took me-
1: here is Shoreditch, by the way. We're in some very, very fucking cool offices, right <laughs> in the heart of the coolest place in London. Um,
0: apparently. Uh, previously. Uh, previously. Um, and, but then never, never lived here. Right. I always came here we had the office here, but right. then I realized why am I, you know, living in all these corners of London, which was great to explore. Yep. But actually, why not I just move here as well? So that's what I did. But it took me six years to realize that. Well, then you, when you were definitely around, so. It but it's similar off. in terms of the nights of Blue Notes. and yeah. Um, you know, early,
1: mother bars yes. and three 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 and plastic peoples well it came a bit later but yeah so this was our playground and don't panic rode that and uh, along with yeah i remember sleaze nation yeah. to the shortage twat to three three three, and then you know yeah. all the way through to the scarlet and fabric and there was just the absolute renaissance of creativity and club kind of culture and an economy that, that that was amazing it was yeah and don't panic was right in the middle of it and we built a really successful business straight out of our bedrooms doing all the print communications and we built these bags of flyers and we put these posters around it yeah and that was what joe came in to do he became the editor of it and so the posters were always they were quite aggy let's do something let's make the world a better place and we worked with banksy and Shepard ferry and you know all sorts of people who had the same agenda as us and the, the way of getting them out was by being paid by clubs to put flyers in the pack and that became the vehicle of it and yeah. we took over the other flyer companies that were about at the time until we had this UKY distribution network and and then one day I woke up and we were in really fucking big trouble and we'd got into fairly massive debt uh, of a couple hundred grand and I was in my very early 20s and it was a real shock to the system and we had to cut serious deals and really get beyond the excitement of all this stuff that was going on and then trade our way out of it and that was my first real learning about business Mm -hmm. and it was the first time the vision became compromised potentially because to get out of this mess I had to move less you know, away slightly from the clubs and record labels and the smaller budgets, but the stuff I really loved, and more into agencies and brands and people with budgets and opportunities to build the business back up. Yeah. And ultimately, that's what Joe has, you know, done so brilliantly and turned it into much more of an agency, and its its club land roots are kind of part of its DNA. Um, and actually, he's done that without selling out. You know, Payne still does a lot of campaigning, creative activism work, and so he's managed to hold on to that vision. But it was quite difficult to. to to maintain that purpose and clarity of purpose when the rubber hits the road in terms of commercial realities. So when did Liberty, what was the transition from Don't Panic to Liberty then? So I was really quite, by the way, I did just say rubber hits the road. (laughs) I think that's a first. I think I've heard other people say it and it slipped into my subconscious. I don't, like a, I don't remember seeing that in the pirate dictionary. I mean, that's like one of those <laughs> w- worms in the wrath of Khan has been inserted in my ear. Do you want ear. me to edit it out? Yeah, please. Yeah, okay. like some blooper over it. Um, no, no, just accept your dadness and, and move <laughs> forward. Uh, so I was in a lot of uncertainty about where we were going and what the point of it was, and I had. So give me some timelines here. So Don't Panic, Liberty launched in 2001. So from 99 to 2000, I was really like, what's this all about? What do we stand for? You know, what's the purpose of all this? Are we really doing this confused vision of good that I had that Don't Panic was going to rebel rouse and and make a difference? Um, And because we got into this more agency-based positioning, and I'd met Mm -hmm. people with lots and lots of money and these brands with lots and lots of influence, but I couldn't get over the fact that I kept meeting these really smart, well-intended, well-educated people who had, you know, an idea that things were perhaps problematic in the world, But they didn't see their role in that, even if they were just selling shit that no one needed. You know, my job was marketing, selling puerile stuff. And here we are at the dawn of a new millennium and, you know, whatever. And I couldn't move past that. It was the year No Logo was published. I used to subscribe to Adbusters. So my kind of, my inspiration was quite clear. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote this line, is ethical marketing an oxymoron? And I set out to test it. And I did a series of interview with various people in marketing that i need to say do you think there could be such a thing as an ethical agency would that would that survive you know mm. would you ever work with them and the 10th person on my list became my business partner because she'd been thinking exactly the same thing but she had proper agency experience she, she oh, worked in soho and she's like i've been thinking the same fucking thing your don't panic credentials my i think she was like senior account director so neither one of us had that and i've just you know made a mess of don't panic yeah um and so we hashed that together and gave ourselves three months to live we raised both personally put in a bit of money about 10 grand. Uh, and said if we can't find a client that wants to back ethical marketing in 10 in 3 months then we're doomed anyway. So okay. that was the you know the the idea of the burning bridge. Who was the about. first client? Uh what was then Genie Mobile? Uh, okay. <laughs> that, that had been BT Internet that became OT. Yeah, I can not remember that. And okay. They stayed a client for about a decade. That's great. It was it was really good times. So
0: Liberty, certainly within the industry and, you know, personally, hugely respected for everything you just said. Thanks so much of indeed. That the purpose and its, uh, you know, just clarity of focus mm-hmm. that, uh, let's face it, we are in a world of marketing and, the, and a world of brand that, you know, is hard to escape yep. now more than ever and certainly now more than 2001. Yep. Um, so to have that foresight then in terms of the world we are now it's obviously way more relevant than ever than it was back then um, I'm just curious to see and the, really the question is because it's, it's, as soon as cause or purpose or you know bigger destination is included in any kind of sentence yes. or business plan yeah, or you know it yeah it goes bigger than yourself yeah right yeah so the question really is then how do you feel in talking about achievements you know was there a a point where you said you know this is what we've achieved what we've set out to achieve with liberty Mm -hmm. um and you know i'm just curious to see how that how that manifested over that time period uh and you know inspiring various other businesses, brands to follow suit. Yeah. Uh, Just to get your thought of, one of the early pioneers within that, really how you felt that's,
1: you know, succeeded. Um, Thank you. It's a a good and honest question to reflect on. And I think that achievement, if you say this is a goal and then you set out to achieve it, you should be proud of achieving it. Um, But probably you should be more proud of what you achieved along the way. 100%. You know, the journey is the destination to paraphrase somebody else's cliche and real success is just a bloody mess right it, it, it looks good when you got there and make a glossy post for instagram or whatever else yeah but the truth of it is you know late nights lost friends and uh a lot of blood sweat and tears
0: mm-hmm.
1: so and you change an awful lot in the pursuit of it and you have to sacrifice stuff to get there so by the time you get there you want something else You know, and you can can remember, I mean, all of us can remember, hello listeners, can you remember, when, you know, you once wanted what you now have, but now you've got it, do you want any less? Do you want something else? And the the truth of liberty, yes, it was this high-minded ideal, but suddenly you've got a room filled with, uh, the idea of liberty, by the way, is this... Uh, Trojan Horse of Marketing, could you look and feel like a marketing agency for the industry to buy into you and bring us their money and opportunities, but then we will convince them to spend their money with us in a way that makes better the world. The very first campaign I wanted to pitch was to Nike, and it was to print condoms with Just Do It on them, uh, because you take the power of their brand into inner-city young black men, typically who at the time wouldn't be seen dead carrying condoms, and that was contributing to an epidemic of, of, of STIs, sexually transmitted infections, in their community. Um, and Nike wouldn't go for it, and I learned a lot about Nike and their brand positioning because it would have compromised their brand of winning. I mean, not necessarily. Uh, But nonetheless, it kind of became a bit of a benchmark for me. Can we disrupt, to now also use an overused word, a way a brand goes about things, but in ways that benefit both society, and then comes back and delivers to the bottom line? Because would that add to increased loyalty? And, you know, the question for Nike, um, who actually have answered this, and I'll give them their credit for that, but everybody else, is if you're contributing to the fucking great mess that we're in a planet that's 60 percent over its biosphere capacity by the by the most conservative estimations of even climate deniers you know we have run out of landfill to fill um and you're involved in selling shit that is non-circular if if lucky we were prescient with liberty nearly 20 years ago i would say 20 years from now non-circular non-sustainable business will be akin to a war crime a war crime i think it's that level that we're pointing towards an undeniable image of a war zone 20 years ago would now look like palm oil deforestation and the advertising industry has a particular choice to make because we are a strategic point of intervention within our clients and you've got a choice to make either you're going to continue helping them to sell shit that nobody needs in which case you're the signature on humanity's own suicide note or you're going to point out different ways and begin to understand what our role is in a less growth prevalent market and those of you who are listening from an agency or creative or strategic capacity, that is your job. Um, you can deny it, and you can say it's not, and it's somebody else's, and it's policy, and anywhere else, but it's not. You know, We all have a choice to make here, and by we, I mean you. We are in a fundamentally important position, and we must use it wisely, because time is running out. We're selling more shit that the world doesn't need is heading towards being a crime, and uh, I don't want to be on the wrong side of that. So that's kind of, I got there, didn't I, by you asking Achievement, so that more people think a bit like that. That's amazing, by the way. Well, you're, you're clearly here and you're part of that thinking yeah, yeah. as well, aren't you? you, know, you 100%. Were, what we were saying earlier it's on. Just so it's
0: great to hear you articulate it like that. I just want to say that.
1: And we're, we're all in it. We were just talking about the, you know, the choices you make about the clients you pitch for, the, the choices we make about the profit we have to eke out something, the choices you make when you pussy out from telling somebody what, you know, what's wrong, that you, you come up with higher-minded ideals and then you end up with compromised notions. You know, all of that, is, is going to sound a lot like we were just following orders one day. And that's not the role that we have to play here. Um, so there was a moment of achievement the, the last year that I was CEO, and I think my new CEO, Alex Goat, who is doing a f- hot desk in Liberty at the moment in one of the uh, spaces <laughs> reserved for young entrepreneurs. The- I hot desk here. Do you? I don't, this used to be
0: my office that we're currently in. It's no longer my office. It's a and- good feeling, isn't it? Then Harry sold my desk out there as well, and that was a, that was a profound moment six weeks ago when I unplugged my iPhone dock, which was my only remaining signifier of actually where I sat and worked. And I took it home, and oh, it's great. You're nomadic again.
1: How are you feeling about that? Like identity, I'm so caught up in these things that we that we create. How do I feel about yeah. it? I think it's great. You know, I'd much
0: rather you know either one of my my staff or one of the co-workers here in the studios, it because yep. you know I'm also not here every day. So, yep. but I'm here as much as I can be, and when I am here, I I want to be talking to people. I want to be you know, catching up with people. Is there something I can help with? Or you know, be available. Yes. Full stop. Not head down working. And also the reality of actually when I need to do some work. Um, you know, write a plan or review something. I actually find it way easier not to do that in this environment. For sure. So, and you know, we've accommodated that for people who are in this environment in terms of private rooms or you know other zones. But it's how do you feel
1: mm, being not needed? It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Deep down, have you ever felt like I mean, to sad, quite a Bransonism
0: sad. of like the first rule of being a boss is to make yourself redundant. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's what, you, I mean, it's what you've got to get to if you've got a I know it's business. what you're
1: supposed to get to, and I know it's good Branson quotes that we can tweet <laughs> at people, but, like, honest <laughs> to goodness, right, deep down, did you always feel proud about that, or was there a moment that felt different? Well, okay, did I feel different? Um, no. Like, because
0: to me, in terms of, well, A, creating a business, I mean, our studios business is a part of the overall business yep. that, of course, you know, I'm close to and, you know, I'm, I know what's happening, but, you know, I don't need to be involved day to day. I mean, that's great because I've got a great team and they're doing great things and, you know, that is, was, you know, still is. future will be the plan and, you know, that just enables you to think about other things and prioritize other routes well this
1: is real leadership people <laughs> if, if you're out there and you want to invest in a business invest in this man because that is real leadership fucking hell and i don't think that's the majority of people i felt confused conflicted really yeah totally i look out on liberty and i think how well it's run alex and the team are doing an amazing job but no one's losing any clients no one's crying no one's running around in flames and i'm like fucking hell is that what it was like when you were there yeah because that's how kind of to fucking run a business uh, <laughs> and I miss, I, I think that... Uh, you miss that? I uh, do. Yeah, in that level of chaos lies some creativity. I, yeah. uh, uh, there was some you know, groups of young people that we worked with in my time that made us deeply unprofitable and were really problematic. And I, and I miss them and I think Liberty misses them. But Liberty is a far more structured, better run business that works with more young people than ever before. So you make choices about it. And yeah, I'm conflicted by that all the time. Wouldn't it have been better if I'd done this or should I still be? Yeah, I, I have never... And, and I'm fucking proud of them and I'm proud like a parent... Yeah. Uh, but I'm a bit of a busybody parent too, probably. And so I, I had a really long period of not being in the office and then I had to ask them if it was all okay. Can I sit in the corner? Um,
0: I'm not going to get involved with anything, just, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, can yeah. I just sit And they don't, here? they
1: don't let me stick my nose into anything. They're really, they're much more grown up about it than I am. Um, but yeah, you're so, and you're much more grown up than, than me too. Don't
0: get me wrong. I'm still
1: like, <laughs> you're like levels. What, what, what's, what's
0: that on the whiteboard? <laughs> yeah. It's like. What's, who are you being? <laughs> Still, I
1: respect to the Branson level. <laughs> Have you ever met him? What's that? Branson.
0: Have I met him? Mm. No, I haven't.
1: I can't work out whether he's genuine or not either. What do you mean? Well, it's just so, um, you know, his story is so inspirational and he's so polished. And to follow him, you're like, you know, like the Virgin come came top in a recent poll of ethical businesses in the UK. Virgin. Okay. Fucking profit mongering national health. Damaging, train bastardizing, you know, fucking virgin, you know, massive PE company run by a bunch of shallow suits, ripping. No, and... Sam, say what you really think. <laughs> I mean, that's the business model, right? <laughs> yeah. At the top of it, there's this guy that we love, and I mean, I respect him, read his books, totally admire him, look up to him, and, and still hold him they in the top of, of, of ethical perceived ethical businesses. Ethical.
0: How are we defining ethical?
1: Uh, your perception is this is an ethical business. You're not given a fucking lecture on es- you know, the perception is what top ethical the businesses name yeah name ethical businesses and virgin came high because of the regard that we have for branson which i think is deserved is that a multiple choice regard i mean i don't want to get into the
0: semantics of how the survey. i was think wrong. you this had to name five
1: or three or five ethical businesses i'll get the i'll get the
0: results okay. for you i'm just curious how t- those surveys top tip t- 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 you know without being cool brands about it which is a total <laughs> sham <laughs> of
1: paying to be called to be put in the cool brands a sham you didn't know that? No, I didn't know that. Oh, Sam! Jesus, I only just discovered that you have to pay to be in a certain retailer whose name I shall not mention because it's the most <laughs> trouble that I've got in so far trying to get on their shelves. But let's
0: not mention that.
1: They're a little um, bit. But
0: no, corporate brands is yeah. The only people in there are paying to be in there. There's no like. But that's
1: that's that's as crazy because if you picked up a newspaper in the last three years, all you'd see is Virgin get lambasted for you know, and fined and lose their contracts. You know, so there's obviously something not going completely right. Yeah. Uh, and then yet yeah, that, that's where they top. Who
0: would be on top of your list? Mohamed Yunus. Yes?
1: He's my business hero. Professor Mohamed Yunus, the founder of Grameen, the only entrepreneur ever to win So,
0: sorry, to clarify, this is a person or a business who's on top of the sustainability? Uh,
1: professor Mohamed Yunus is credited with inventing microfinance when he was professor of economics at Bangladesh uh, University. Yeah. And seeing the same women beg for change every day outside the university, one day he decided to make them alone. Yeah. And I
0: remember.
1: lo and behold, it's a, it's a they went and ran a business and now he runs Grameen fisheries, industries, telecommunications and various other things um, and has lifted millions of people out of poverty by helping them create sustainable businesses. And I think is you know a, a, a clear indication of the evolution of business that we have to be looking at um, that's not profit-centered, yet still can be profitable, Yeah, that can be aggressive in terms of growth, but in a less growth-aggressive market. And he manages to balance a lot of the paradoxes. You know, you were touching earlier on. If you start putting purpose and other words like that into business plans, yes, it can become bigger than you, but also it can become belittled. Mm-hmm. It's very easy for people to mock that or chide it You know, as a lesser form of business. And yeah. so he has delivered at scale. He's delivered in, in, in every sector. He's delivered in far greater social impact than many charities would because he's created sustainable forms for it.
0: With a slightly less uh, d- switched-on PR team.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, he's fallen the foul prison. of the Bangladeshi government. He's in big trouble with them, but they seem right. like a uh, fairly corrupt bunch of rogues. Okay. So um, I'd take Yunus' side, from what I'm aware of. B Corp. Yes. Thoughts? Uh, I really respect it. I think it's a really interesting model, and I um, strongly advocate, and I believe the team at Liberty are going through the process of trying to become one. As are we. Good. Good man. I like the idea because it's um, organic. You know, you get your B Corp status based on the fact that you continue to improve mm-hmm. rather than a flag that you can wave for your own benefit. Yep. You're in, you're in, and then you become a community of continuous improvement. And I think that's the answer for all... You know, there's no, there's no sudden good business we can all shift into, and there's far too much you know, greenwashing, and and there's too many problems in the big narrative around purpose in business. But B Corp does seem to be a push towards continual improvement. And for that, I respect it greatly. Yeah. Agreed. Um, That said, I do worry about that whole space a bit, especially coming out and reflecting on where I've been within social enterprise. And there's a danger of us congratulating ourselves when the battle isn't even begun agreed be more pirates. <laughs> let's bring it up to date okay um
0: i've read it it's great thank you very um much. and i let's maybe sort of segue from the don't panic to the liberty to the pirates you know wh- where did that come from is, is is that book
1: always been there from the beginning um you just love to hear the story Um, no, no, the book hasn't been there from the beginning. Um, what I've been there from the beginning was I'd said, so Liberty started when I was 24 and I, you know, in those terms of achievements, one of the things I'd said was we'd prove our success ultimately by the industry following us. And you'd be able to see other agencies or businesses taking a more Liberty approach. And the year Alex took over, we won the, beamer award which is a pretty good thing to win anyway it was the grand prix and it was a unanimous decision by the judges for the first time ever to give an agency a grand prix and, and alex was there to pick it up as the chief exec so that was one of the few times you really felt i really felt achievement that the model has had an industry-wide I- I- impact um by your peers yeah
0: and by your clients and um, by the industry at large,
1: unequivocally regardless of my desires to say you know you lot are all based on us you know you should have done that regardless of all of that an independent group unanimously decide that there's been an you know seismic shifts that's what's important to us now isn't it you know not just tokenistic stuff but seismic shifts and from which we're unlikely to go to go backwards so that's that's good that feels like there's legacy in there and part of my then fear of moving away from Liberty, whilst we're being honest about that point, is me moving away from that legacy because um, that's one of the things I can actually put my fingers on and say I'm proud of that. Mm-hmm. But in, you know, like now I can. I, I met someone that works at Don't Panic on, at lunch on Sunday, at a big lunch. And they didn't even didn't even know my name. <laughs> There's no bust of me above the door. <laughs> How did that make you feel? <laughs> ah, a Bit confused. Um, anyway, yeah, I would never. You know, Joe's run that fucking thing for nearly 20 years. He's done an amazing job of it. Like, the last thing you know, they should do is, you know. <laughs> Just call me out every Monday morning. Remember the bounder. Uh, but, you know, nonetheless, what will my daughter ever know of that? You know, and I'm a bit um, distracted by that thought. Of still got
0: moment. some on the backseat posters. <laughs> yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah.
1: I'm waiting for them to fetch a pretty price. <laughs> no worries, mate. Got every one of them. Uh, and so that year, I'd said right from the outset, so hey, we're going to change. Which year are we in now? I don't know. When we began Liberty, one of the things we'd said was we're going to look for success being an industry shift, and we are going to. That was the KPI. That was the two thousand one goal in the original business plan when it wasn't called Liberty and it was for a time called Shit Hot. (laughs) It was, yeah.
0: My name? I'd like C- the way that comf- I've, I've, company name?
1: I've admitted that to my previous rival. I've done, never, rarely admitted that truth. But yes, we came up with the worst agency name on earth.
0: So if I look on company's house records, that no, was no, registered no. as that? No,
1: the business was originally registered as Universal Exports because that is the name James Bond used to have on his business cards.
0: Ah,
1: <laughs> suave. I've always treated this stuff really, really professionally. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, so we said we were okay, going to change so the Liberty, fucking world. And we like, said we changed the world. And then it was time for me to... And I also said, when I'm 40, I'll be too old to run a youth program. Yeah. And I said that aloud several times. And then it turns out it wasn't any kind of joke. I was 40 and it was time to hand over. And I knew that I needed a bit of a distraction project. I knew I was also quite angry in the way that you're so fucking sublime, you know, zenning out of your business on your Branson cloud. Uh, you know, I was frustrated and a bit confused and various other things. So I wanted a vehicle as a distraction project, partly to keep me away from the guys and give them space and partly to re-identify who I am. And so I pitched a book and I got a deal. And so that, throughout that year, which was 2016, handing over to Alex, towards the end of the year, we won that award. I think it was 2016. And that was the year that I wrote it. So I wrote it in the mornings and at the beginning of the year, I was still full-time at Liberty. And by the end of the year, in December that year, I got my piece.
0: 16, 17? Pe-
1: no, yeah, so that was the year of 2017. Yeah. My second daughter was born the same week that I got my P45 from Liberty. So it was, I, I, we made it a complete thing that I was stepping out. Yeah. Uh, and that was the same week that I got I had to deliver the manuscript. Wow. So it was a triple whammy deadline. Big, big week. <laughs> it was, yeah. Then <laughs> no, it was Christmas. <laughs> Happy Christmas, everyone. Happy
0: Christmas. <laughs> yeah. What's,
1: so... What's wrong with it? As
0: far, you know, from the outside, it's been exceptionally well received. Um, yes. Yeah. From the inside, how has it been? This is your first book?
1: Yes. Well, the... The, f- the book I pitched was a really boring book. It was, it was a miserable, <laughs> horrible uh, book called Purpose First, and it was like a really worthy hand-wringing argument for the, uh, the necessary evolution of capitalism. Okay. And the kind of points I was making earlier on, I suppose, um, that unless we do something drastic to affect this business model, which, let's face it, for the latter part of the 20th century has been based on a singular business model, which is exploitation, point to me the business that hasn't in some way been based on exploitation of the world's natural resources or of human resources, yeah. you know, the creative process or whatever. You know, that's what we've really built these profitable ships on. Now we've realized that's bad. The risk is we congratulate ourselves for having businesses that pollute less or having businesses that look relatively diverse. And the response should be, well done, but fuck off. You know, that, that should now be the baseline expectation. And we need businesses that actually contribute meaningfully. And that probably means at lesser profits. So that's the conversation to have, and I wrote this book called Purpose First. God, it makes me yawn even just say <laughs> saying it. It was really shit. It was like, um, you know, imagine if there was like TEDx Ballam, <laughs> like to to. Are you hating on Ballam? Yeah, <laughs> some of my best friends live in Ballam. <laughs> But you know what I mean. I mean, or, or, or Telex Clapham, although I did a talk at Telex Clapham, so, and they're really nice people. So none the, you know, nonetheless, you know, the kind of hand-wringing, worthy triteness of, the, you know, whatever. In that space, it would have been a book for the 2,000 people who I've already met and already agree with me, and I agree with them. And uh, luckily it got me commissioned, and then I had good editors that pushed me in a different direction. What really knocked me into, into shape was I've always worked with young entrepreneurs, and I still continue to, and in workshopping it with them, Actually, it was a guy called Callum, who's been a big big part of Liberty's um, journey, our creative director, and uh, he said, where the fuck is all the, all the usual? Where's all the waving of the hands and all the excitement? Where's all the pirates? Where's all like, the, the metaphors and the stuff that you usually bring to this? Where have you gone? And I'd gone to this thing about my dad. I'd gone to trying to be a grown-up. I was leaving Liberty, so now it was time to write a business book, and I wrote it in a really boring way that I thought was sounding serious, because it would be taken seriously by business. And the message and the reminder was that's not who you are. You know, this is who you're about. And these young people that have inspired Liberty throughout its journey and that I hope that Liberty, and obviously they have now, proven they will still stand up for and look out for. Uh, And so it was a book about them, those kids that have, excuse me, been my inspiration and are the source of all the success and achievements that we've had. And it was a call to arms for them not to get looked over at, at the moment that the world needs them more than ever, particularly like if you look up to the traditional areas for inspiration and what you see is a vacuum of leadership where you look to the institutions where power is boasted to lie like Westminster and you smell its own morbidity and death. Um, and then you look to these you know, stunning generation who are getting shit done. Mm-hmm. And so they are the modern pirates that the metaphor was about. And it's a call to arms to them to take no heed to no longer look vertical for their role models, but to look horizontally. Um, to make it clear that the grown-ups don't have a plan for them, um, and really they're, they're holding them back, uh, and to rebel. Agreed. And, it's a know, difficult thing for you and me to say there, really, isn't it, in our 40s? We're I mean, neither old nor young. In between us. Is... Well, everybody who's young listening to this would maybe disagree. <laughs> no, you're definitely old dudes. It's a mindset. It, yes, yes.
0: So that's what keeps me young. That's going to
1: save you for another five
0: years at least um and you know there was there was clear similarities between a, a piece of research we did last year around gen z 16 to 24 year olds yep from a global study of yeah you know, everything you just said in terms of how they work how they think how they operate yep. um what they care about who they interact with um and you know a general <sighs> frustration of you know, what's come before them, and you know, actually a, a motivation and a work ethic that is like nothing I've seen before. And nope. you know, just try hiring them. Yes, I've tried. Yes, and they don't. It's not that they don't want a job, but you know, they just want an experience to get them further forward. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, simplifying crudely, uh, but you know, that gives me hope. Yeah, uh, that gives me faith. Yes, uh, for a future generation coming through. That they are that motivated and that focused and that um, you know it is just it's a, it is a mindset that is 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 great and, well, and uh, I think um, we and, only and, at- and exciting yeah and um yeah yeah really could really I I'm just fascinated to see how it will play out Yes. um but yeah. I hadn't I wasn't uh, uh, it's really interesting to hear that the, that was the reason. Well, certainly the shift was due to your internal team, you know, workshopping it and taking it another place, but also then create a new purpose as to who this is for. It was, a, it was a pivot
1: and they were always kind of in my mind, but I felt like I was having to grow up and with liberty, I was going to lose my access to those young people. And yeah. then this moment, one of my inner fears was uh, becoming the cliche of the middle aged middle class white Ex agency owner who becomes, you know, international public speaker and consultant.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: A cliche I haven't fully escaped. Um, but nonetheless, I wanted to, and I didn't want to just pontificate, having moved away from it being this boring purpose first book to then being, well, well, I'll tell you about Gen Z. Come yeah. on, kids, save the world. <laughs> um, so that would have been horrible as well for everyone. Uh, and so I workshopped it relentlessly. And, and that insight from Callum, who, by the way, is not Gen Z, he works alongside me. Um, big part of Liberty's growth. Uh, but it was in the workshops then that I then really stuck to it. And I workshopped it with young entrepreneurs in Soweto and Mamalodi. We've got offices in South Africa. I workshopped it in Athens. I've been part of a creative network there for a while and an interesting reverse diaspora of entrepreneurs going back to help prop up the economy there. I workshopped it in Baltimore with young people and young entrepreneurs from Detroit and Illinois and Chicago, fucking war zones. I workshopped it in Bradford, Brixton, everywhere I could with the... The kind of Gen Z that you're describing, you know, this incredibly diligent 16 to 24-year-old, entrepreneurial and innovative fucking hell, the world is mine and you guys have let me down, at the core of it. And that's not every single 16 to 24-year-old, and I would hate any 16 to 24-year-old to think it is. You know, we need some, you know, confused and and, and completely otherworldly artists and the rest of it. Uh, But nonetheless, what I encountered was very, very hard to find someone in their early 20s who didn't have some kind of side hustle on the go. You know, they might not be the thrusting, you know, uh, focus of the research you've done, but nonetheless, or their mate or their mate or a mate of their mate has some hard hustle on the go and they're kind of participating. Yeah. You know, it became harder and harder to find someone that wasn't at least got something something on the go. And that really, really inspired the the, the book, took on a, a tone of its own. At the same time, I became very excited that that, that I was going to write the call to arms and advocate on behalf of this group. Um, The metaphor of pirates took on a whole new... Um, uh, aspect for me with the so I started doing research so an underlying notion as to why I wrote the book is I've struggled with dys- dyslexia most of my life and uh, I've also a chip on my shoulder about not going to university so being totally non-academic and I was interested another of my <laughs> many deep psychological uh, issues with Leaving Liberty was worried about all the success we'd had and achievements that we had you know, the, the achievements of the young people you definitely don't want to take responsibility for you want to put them back on the young people and us as a team, I always knew that it was the team that, that had done it, so could I do something on my own? Mm. So, I always loved that Eleanor Frank, uh, Eleanor Frank, Eleanor Roosevelt line, you know, that if you wanna know the next thing you should do, you should take a look at the thing that frightens you the most. And for me, kind of writing a book summed all of that up. So I was doing it as a test of fire, doing it to advocate on behalf of these young people, call them my modern pirates, and then one day I found this document, which was the, the true pirate history. And 300 years ago exactly, a group of twenty-somethings, the millennials of the eighteenth century, rejected a broken and unfair establishment and set out to chart some new rules in new societies on board ships. And they fought for equality, justice, and fairness against a you know, tired and broken system that didn't just need a, a reboot; it needed a fucking boot. And the it stopped being a metaphor. You know, it was just historical allegory, if that's even the right term. Um, and it was just. Unbelievable. And every further bit of research, it was like, what? They invented, you know, dual governance. They had the first time we'd ever seen workplace compensation on board a ship because they'd escaped this terrible stratified bullying system on board the merchant navy. So they made a new fare structure. What they really were, on average, 28 years old. What they were releasing and freeing people of colour from the slave ships and then giving them equal opportunities aboard their boats. What? They had this new level of democracy that involved women, although there weren't that many women, but nonetheless, and women had even positions of power. What? They they, they created the notion of facilitative leadership, holacracy, self-organising teams, all this shit that we hold true as new innovation, they were doing. And that the period of the golden age of pirates is innovative like only the 19th century, perhaps the Second World War, or the beginning of the Silicon Valley. And in that sense, they kind of... The unicorns of their time like there was this place where you could get treated equally having we'll say in these innovative organizations with this pioneering new business model we can come back to morality if you want and you know get a free lunch they were truly like the googles of the hour and you know the they were the gossip the talk of the town they were working class heroes in that sense they were social revolutionaries fighting for workers rights that had never been on the agenda and they became such a threat to the powers that be and the nascent democracies and what was about to become the age of rebellion because they were the petri dish of rebellion. The t- Ideas were so successful and so many wanted to join them that they took the, the organisational structure off boats and onto land and created this community. It was a proto-democratic republic that survived for a decade, proving that there was a way of working that the, 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 the establishment at the time was denying. And if there couldn't be a clearer metaphor for this generation... You have the power to rewrite the rules that you're, you've currently inherited. And if, you know, I was inheriting the world right now, I'd want a fucking refund. So at least the chance to set out and write some new rules. And those role models currently don't exist. But you don't have to look far back to find them. So then I got very excited. As you've, as you've read. More excited than just that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was an exciting book to write. And then one of the things that started driving me is like, I was obsessed. Someone must have fucking written this book. It's so obvious. Like, and there's lots of books about pirate history and there's even one or two there's a really great book by adam morgan or adam grant uh, the guy who started eat eat big fish eat dead fish yeah <laughs> guy I clearly look up to um <laughs> and he wrote the pirate inside which is he wrote with campaign and the i found that one someone said "Oh, you need to read this and i opened it i was like damn somebody has written the fucking book and the first chapter's got a lot of similarities. And then he ends the chapter by saying, but only an idiot would try and extend this metaphor to a whole book. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. I like, Hi, Sam. yeah Hi, hiya. Yeah. Over here. <laughs> That's my kind of challenge. <laughs> so then it, but then it became about telling the story, moving the times. By the end of that year, we had uh, you know, uh, the new president in the state with just the turmoil we were going through. And it became more and more... You know, just this accelerated journey, the book felt, and I was continuing to do the workshops, By by now, you know, with 80% of the manuscript written, the workshops were like fire, you know, people were getting mm. up in their chairs, yes, fuck yes, you know, this is what I'm talking about. Mm. And to get that response, this, 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 this chancer, by that point, you know, only doing one or two days at Liberty in Baltimore, you know, young, young this one amazing young entrepreneur from like Detroit, you know, fucking hell, they're facing some shit. And they're saying, yes, this is right. And all young people in Mammalodi, they're facing some real shit saying, yes, this is right. Then it all changed. And I knew I had something that was both powerful and potent and prescient. Fantastic. The Code, for those who haven't read it yet. Ah, The Pirate Code. Um, The point of The Pirate Code is these rogues that we all know, these kind of Jack Sparrows, these weirdly sexy pirates that we all know about, the biggest surprise about them all is that they were deeply accountable. And their organisations were, organizations were so successful over such a sustained period because of this level of accountability that they had. And that was due to the Pirate Code. It united them all. It was a law. It was it was diligently upheld and it was punished in the most gruesome ways. Uh, and my advocation is for a Pirate Code 2.0. Which is? Terribly glib to stick a 2.0 at the end of anything I know and rather <laughs> 2005. But, you know, for the... for the the mass that I hope to reach. I hoped it would do its job. The Pirate Code 2.0 is is for you to write. You know, there's a journey that the book goes on and it's still the process of the workshops that I run. And it's a series of questions to ask yourself. And along those questions, you will determine some values that you're willing to fight for and genuinely fight for. You're willing to take a punch in the fucking face for or, or punch someone else in the face or risk what you hold dear for. And that's truly what this comes down to the notion of rule breaking isn't breaking rules for the sheer hell of it it's about rule remaking but that can't be done without some breaking in the first place so knowing that it's the right thing to do to do the wrong thing takes an awful lot of guts we all follow principles and precedents being the one who stands up and says i'm not doing this and risk losing your job or risk shame in front of your peers or or risk losing your income and, and you have a family support, say, I'm not doing this, this isn't right, is the choice that we were talking about earlier on. And this is the choice of, of the guardians of anything. Are you going to just follow orders when you know what we're doing is wrong? Those guards in the States recently had to put children in cages. You choose to follow your orders. Of course there's life and there's context and everything around it. Or you choose to break the fucking rules. And I believe that we're going through some very historic times and these questions are likely to be asked of all of us. Are you just going to work on that brief then? Are you going to take that, I don't know, let's name some names, ExxonMobil brief? Will you take the KFC chicken brief to increase you know, an average purchaser from twice a month to four times a month? Are, are you going to just continue to make that pointless landfill-based product? You know, or are we going to push our greater creative and intellectual uh, ability towards you know, some of the solutions that we need that we clearly don't have any fucking other answers or leaders for? And in these choices in these times, I think that's where you decide do you want to end up a pirate legend? do you know what the values are going to be that you're willing to fight for and is that how we begin to rewrite society? Yes, it is because that's the answer at the end of the book that I discovered I went into it thinking those kind of quotes about what's that the, the famous Margaret Mead quote that the the only thing There's nothing more powerful than a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens. It is, in fact, the only thing that has ever changed the world. Or words to that effect. And I would have thought that was a bit of a glib Instagram, Insta quote before. And it's just fundamentally true. I've studied this, I've studied all the rebellions and revolutions and the great rebels of history. It all begins from a small group of us having an idea and then committing to create some change and being willing to fight for the values that we hold dear. And in these times when values are, you know, cheap and, and questionable. questionable and you know we need instant responses I think these questions are going to become really important for us and so the advocation of some useful practical rebellion is where the book is a beginning and I'm arguing for professional rule breaking in our daily jobs and, and roles and professional rule breaking for the record gets you nearly fired probably once a quarter uh, means that you're pushing it just about enough <laughs> you're doing something that's changing something if you're doing that, then chances are you're going to be ready when the time is upon you. are.
0: <laughs> couldn't resist, I've could been he? He for couldn't that. resist the
1: dodgy <laughs> pirate accent. So, fellow pirates, I name a few. Um, my favourite classic pirate would be Anne Bonny, um, who w- one day soon will have a, a film, uh, incredible story of a woman who had to dress as a man to become the get onto the pirate ship and then becomes the true pirate queen and legend leading fearlessly from the front taking on all comers and undoubtedly the only female in her position at the time that was regarded as equal capability and intelligence and paid equally by her employer um and the current pirates uh malala is the first one called out in the book which surprises a lot of people that she would qualify but she fits neatly into my framework as uh rebels who break rules not for the sake of breaking rules but to write new ones um, and is willing to fight for her values and create organizational networks in much the way pirates did avoid scale and then ultimately is a master mistress storyteller um to make stories that send ripples around the world and those are the principles of of pirates whether they be classic or modern any others um on your
0: fellow crew members
1: yeah. Uh, I mean, I've ended up coming up with a framework in the center of the book to define pirates because a lot of people will say, well, what about Somali pirates? And what about Donald Trump? Isn't he a pirate? And uh, so on and so forth. So I've used what I perceive as being the way that the golden age of pirates, this pronounced period of time, how they brought about change. And then once I laid it into the 21st century, um, Chance the Rapper fits the bill. Um, you know, becoming the first ever artist to win a Grammy without a record deal. Mm-hmm. Snap goes the music industry's business model um, and any other young person aspiring to a record deal. And here you've got somebody rewriting the rules and proving their ability and their independence allowed for not just a greater creative freedom but also a political one and then a financial one. Um, Right through to close to home, uh, Cressy Westlings, one of my favourite kind of UK-based pirates, the pioneer of revolutionary reclaimed fashion. She has single-handedly, actually, with her boyfriend uh, Elvis, um, the other half of Elvis and Cressy, She started out with fire hose, which is one of the biggest contributors to landfill because it has to be regularly checked and then sent away, and it doesn't biodegrade because it's fire hose. Uh, And she's zeroed all fire hose going to landfill by turning it into sustainable luxury products. The major breakthrough came when she got one of the products on the front cover of Vogue. It's now only stocked in the most high-end boutiques, or you can order it direct, and you cannot fault a single inch of this woman's business model from the way that it's produced through the sourcing of it through to the way the factory is powered i mean by fucking god she is relentless and has zeroed zeroed at going to landfill and the firefighters who then donate their um uh, hose will then get 50 percent of the profits that she makes back into their firefighters charities she's just taken on burberry who are one of the biggest the fashion industry and its crimes for leather production can only just about be matched by the leather in your luxury car seats for the criminal fucking waste that goes on. Um, she just tied up a £5 million deal with Burberry to tackle it head-on. And the nerve it takes to take on what is you know, a very preoccupied industry who's quite closed about these things, mm-hmm. you know, is huge. And she's rewriting the rules of her business. Yeah, that's great. She's legendary if you want to... Uh, 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 if there's, if there's a handing on of the baton to a future guest, Cressy Westling. Well, that was my last question. No way. <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. But
0: let's, you've already answered it, so we can answer some more before. Um, just, and I'm conscious of time, um,
1: maybe yeah, just... how long is your podcast? It wasn't, it's not 35 minutes anymore, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. Are you, are you still listening? <laughs> it's 53. Do you know why the optimum time of a podcast is 45 minutes? No.
0: It's your length of average commute.
1: Yes, exactly. The length of the average commute is an hour. That's the most that human beings can tolerate. After okay, we've which,
0: got seven minutes left.
1: Well, no, because forty-five minutes is the bit for listening. Because there's the fiddling around, getting out of the house, getting to the bus stop, doing oh, whatever. Okay. Then there's the I'll period of time.
0: Exactly,
1: <laughs> fucking headphones. Then there's a bit where you're listening, kind of checking emails, as you are probably right now, doing something. <laughs> except now you're at 53 minutes, so that means you've probably just arrived at work or partly at home. Will he shut up? Can I, can I finish and do something else? Or just stop listening? Uh, but it's changed, right? So in the days when only horses were available to us as transport, 45 minutes was as far as you get on a horse. And when Hyperloop becomes real, then you'll travel as far as you can get in 45 minutes. It's the time, not the distance. Where do you,
0: How far do you
1: get on Crossrail in 45 minutes? I don't know. I was just thinking, if someone in the future is going to be listening to this <laughs> podcast, like what? I came like a high, bloop. What? What? I just arrived at Mars.
0: Amazing. Um, just to close it up in our remaining few minutes.
1: Um, <laughs> Try and shut me down. <laughs> it really just- cheered me up, though.
0: Oh, yeah? yeah? Oh, this is yeah, yeah. good. I Thanks haven't even broken into the whiskey yet. I know, but I feel much better, okay? In. I'm rum, sorry. Thanks, We're great. talking keeping it pirate.
1: There you go, right? It's a, good, it's a good message, isn't it? Sometimes, literally, a cup of tea and a chat. There you go. Someone being a bit interested in you <laughs> feeds your ego. <laughs> tea is good, and I feel good about the world again.
0: Awesome.
1: There wasn't any rum in that. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. no, it doesn't need to be. It's just that, you know, a chat and a cup of tea It's the you power know, of these things, lifts you back always, up. Always, always important. I, I quickly want to. I'm always there for you, man. I'm always there for you.
0: Thanks. thanks. We've only just met, but you know. Ex rivals, best friend. I want to touch briefly at the end. You mentioned dyslexic. Yes. I am fellow dyslexic. Right. And had a good chat with Pip, who is also. And um, just want to end in terms of your. You know how you feel that's defined who you are and you know, a profound story about your dad, mm-hmm. um, and you know, the, the, sort of the missing piece in terms of driving a purpose. Yep. But where does this, where did, where was dyslexia in that in terms of the creation or the definition of who, who you are and where, where you, where you're charting yourself to go?
1: Mm. I sometimes think that's what kind of makes up, and it's interesting, you know, the backbone of this conversation being some of the questions about success and achievement and not really being able to squarely answer those things. Overcoming suffering, not to put too grand a name on it, is partly what drives us, isn't it, I think? And trying to end or or balance, manage the suffering that you feel is kind of what we're going for, and that's really complex because that's hard to get to, and we do so much that contributes to it. Um, yet we're, you know, we're hardwired to do that originally. We're 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 at, we're made for a fight. We're more made for conflict than we are for anything else. And now we have less saber-toothed tigers to run away from. We create conflicts in our lives. And I am deeply, you know, when I have asked myself some of these questions, fairness is really the value that I will fight for. I can't walk past unfairness. You know, it annoys the hell out of my wife. Um, I'll stop and defend someone if I think it's unfair. And I feel I was unfair, I feel it was unfair in my life to lose my dad. And I didn't realise that through the dawn of liberty that I was trying to put that right and putting it right in other young people's lives. And it wasn't until I tried some psychotherapy who, you know, I went into with a lot of cynicism. And to put me in my place, she pointed out that I was like paragraph three in her textbook, you know, classic Saviour Complex, which really did put me in my place. But I ended the nightmares uh and so i think a lot of it a lot of life is that isn't it you're fighting to put right what you feel has been done wrong to you and dyslexia is one of those mine was not diagnosed at school you just had to kind of get on with it you know there's still words that i just fundamentally can't spell doesn't matter how (laughs) you're just approaching like what's this mess of letters without grammarly grammarly is my first real relationship with ai uh grammarly helped me write this book in ways i can't fully express in the same way that you know, V helps me run better, you know, the little AI moments that are beginning to surround you. In fact, fucking it's true. Grammarly didn't get a credit in the book. Grammarly, I'm really sorry. You should you have had a credit in the book. Yeah, credit him now. Yeah, okay. Um, wouldn't be able to get there without it. Yeah. And what is it, you know? So yes, that was, but the same goes for not going to university. So one's tragedy, no one could have done anything about. One's dyslexia, I think you're born with that. Um, one's not going to university. Those were choices of my own. But they all feel like wrongs. And I've then f- found ways to try and put them right. And I think that's the backbone to what, we're, what, we, what we try to do as human beings. We're here to f- fight, I think, and fight, to f- hopefully, not uh, spend life in eternal conflict, fight to put things right and make it mm-hmm. better for those who come next. That's the benevolent side of it all. But sometimes it's just fucking fight, isn't it? I completely agree. And Pip
0: summarizes it accurately into a single word, which is resilience. In terms of the well-documented leaders or creatives or any personas um, uh, with dyslexia, and they just always had to fight and push and struggle that little bit more. Yeah, and you know that is an inherent quality, which I hadn't even. You know, Pip was sitting there a few weeks back having a similar conversation, and I don't know. It was. She summarised it so well, um, and even on my side, I was like, "That, that's it. It's mm-hmm. and you and you don't forget because it's like, I mean, you're just working, right? And you're trying to get ahead and you're yep. trying to achieve the goal. And but those those moments, they're there and they've always been there. And you you know, they're hidden away down there from whether it's through school or whether it's through those early times or those those. And it wasn't, I mean, on personal side, it wasn't incredibly bad bad but you know it was still you know a hurdle yeah you know, that's a hurdle that not many other people certainly in my class or in my you know surroundings because obviously you didn't talk about it whereas now it's way better because everybody's talking about it yeah and um yeah it's that resilience and that's a you know you know, if you're born with dyslexia that's that's the you know that's the other that's the result of it
1: mm-hmm. in terms of actually what you do about it do what's pip's point that dyslexia breeds resilience because you have to get on with it yeah exactly Mm. and talking about being a fighter
0: and you know having and this isn't about a big cause that you're fighting against this is yourself yeah in terms of getting your head around those words or making sure you stay up with your classmates in terms of the progress
1: I think it, yeah, there's something really, really in that. And I think about it in my daughter a lot. You know, the, because for me, resilience is a, we were talking about culture early on being an overused word. And I think resilience, not giving up and that not killing you is really important as a skill, being able to take those knocks and then turn them into strengths. Yeah. And, and it's something we're never, ever taught. You know, you're either taught to give up or, you know, see people around you, depends on what you, how you're socialized really or you see somebody who turns you know, the knocks that you get and turns them into strengths. And I think that's, that's so distinct that resilience almost doesn't, doesn't do it justice. And it's such a useful trait, if you can... I think of that about my daughter. How do we... you know, Things she wants to give up and she wants to run away from, how do I not become that like overbearing dad? You know, Go on! But how do you kind of ingrain that sense, and is it naturally found? So there's a disproportionately high number of entrepreneurs that are dyslexic, yeah. as there are criminals. So one that's but not necessarily the same category Well there's a dysle- disproportionately high number of entrepreneurs in prison Much higher in the prison population It's about 20% of the prison population have been entrepreneurs proportionally,
0: What is the proportion of dyslexics in prison?
1: Um, well it must be at least 20% Because there's the, the high rate of entrepreneurs in there So the question Who the fuck came up with the word entrepreneur? Because that is definitely one of my hard to spell words I hate it as well Fucking hell right? It's guarantee <laughs> <laughs> I can't spell necessary, and I, I can't spell necessary <laughs> or professionalism. I can never. And these words are so important, but I can't be professional. But who came up with entrepreneurs? We're like fuck it, right? We're going to get those fuckers. We'll yeah. come up with the hardest word for them to spell
0: for all those dyslexic entrepreneurs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There yeah. you go.
1: Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> okay, on that note,
0: I think we on are that. definitely at our hour. Hour and two minutes. I hope you're not late for work, guys um you've Actually, already answered my final question well done thanks. um so my
1: I like to be ahead of the curve uh
0: the penultimate question now the ultimate final question is how can someone find you how can someone get in contact
1: uh and you know where best to uh, to look you up um my this is my challenge of the moment so i've really enjoyed this year of being a one person band on my merry pirate mission i was more surprised than anybody that the book has done well um and it's done well commercially it's sold like twenty thousand books in the uk which i'm told is very good for books um it well, sounds kind of small to me but nonetheless uh and it's there's some deals in other countries so it's coming out in other countries which is all very, very exciting but the biggest most frightening response is the people who've read it and now got in touch with their pirate rebellions so the first one was a young woman who wrote to me and forwarded me her resignation letter saying right i've got halfway through your book you're fucking right it's time to make a change and i was like oh, oh. <laughs> wait a minute <laughs> as i just explained my oh. reasons for writing the book were you know quite quite complex um and yet of course in at heart it's an advocation for rebellion but i didn't expect you to actually <laughs> play rebel uh, and the next day there was another one the next the day following there was two and there's i've given up my cushy corporate job i'm gonna start a social enterprise to just like fuck it you're right i'm gonna take on the gambling industry uh, with expanding foam in their machines and you know, great, sublime, sophisticated, all sorts. Of one, a of big rebellion around dyslexia is forming, and I've got hundreds and hundreds of them. then marketing terms, by my count, I've got just about like two percent return on rebellion. Which you know, for an unpacked promotion, is pretty good, mate. Uh, <laughs> but i got that's that. your metric. I don't know what metric to have. I like it. Dad jokes. And I don't know how else to measure it. I don't know what the fuck to do with it. So, yes, please get in touch. I'm really easy to find. Sam I'm Conofillende. You don't only... know what to do with that. I didn't set out to start something. I wanted to write something, have a bit of a different life. And you didn't be an set out
0: th- to start something called, like, create a rebellion? Yeah, I mean, oh, you know.
1: Speak to my therapist. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I've got hundreds of fucking pirates wanting to start rebellions. And if this has spoken to you, then do get in touch. Because I've just committed to start the fucking rebellion and I've just found some money and I'm going to advertise this week. And I haven't told anyone this. Oh, um,
0: uh, you are?
1: For a community manager Great. to come on board, full-time role. I've got about 50 grand so I can afford someone good uh, for a year's salary to help me turn what's really I couldn't claim as anything more than an active audience. Many of whom I've not replied to, so I'm really sorry. I just couldn't stay on top of it all. Uh, But in your hundreds, I'm about to now find a way. and We're going to do a meet-up in January. We're going to do an online place where people can share their stories of rebellion and try and make more of it. This is going to become international because the book's out in uh, numerous markets with America coming first. And deep down in my massive imposter syndrome about this whole thing, I don't believe that it's going to have a similar response in other countries. But my logical mind tells me that it probably will. So... Uh, if you are in any way inspired or interested by this notion of breaking the rules, or frustrated that the rules that we've got, you know, provide some challenges, and you want to step out and do something different and take that risk, then join the people who've decided to start going late to work, or you know, throwing away the rules of meetings, or you know, doing all the sorts of crazy things that have got in touch and join the fucking rebellion.
0: How do they contact
1: you? BeMorePirate.com or at BeMorePirate on all of your favourite social media handles. Apart from Snapchat, because I'm too old for Snapchat. Sam, this has been a pleasure.
0: <laughs> I'm, uh, mostly, I'm glad that you're now happier than you were when you came in. I really am. Even, even really if that is just <laughs> one little thing that we've done the, re- the last hour. Um, and yeah, it's been fascinating talking to you. I uh, wish you all the success in your rebellion. Um, would love to come along to your rebellion. What do you call a group of rebels? Mutiny. A mutiny, um, obviously. (laughs) And, um, yeah, wish you every success in the future.
1: Thank you very much indeed. I've really enjoyed it, and you have uh, unequivocally cheered me up. And anyone who's feeling a little less cheery today, (laughs) go and have a chat with someone you don't really know. Go and chat to Will. Yeah, come and chat to Will. It's great. (laughs) He's got a really nice office. Loads of booze, and he makes a nice cup of tea.